The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and today is question and answer day on Real Life Real Estate Investing. In fact, let's call it question and answer catch-up day here on Real Life Real Estate Investing because y'all are so good about sending interesting and detailed questions whenever there's a question and answer week that I looked in my little folder that says radio show questions the other day and realized that I had like 17 that had been sent since sometime in 2021 and that uh, had never made it onto the show because of all the great questions. So we're just going to work our way through those questions today and uh, not, not put out a call for new questions unless you are willing to just sort of wait for them to be answered in a future Q&A show. So let's go straight to our first question, which is from Dave in Chicago. He says, I'm part of a mastermind, and one of those guys there is part of several other masterminds and relayed that he knows five investors that in the past couple of months have had banks call loans due on sale. Was subject to becoming the hot strategy, when was subject to ever not a hot strategy, uh, and with some bad actors, uh, I can't read what he actually wrote on the radio, but uh, let's just say messing up the game. Number one, are you seeing or hearing this becoming more common lately? Number two, are you adjusting how you qualify a potential subject to deal? And number three, would you just wrap a subject to if banks are starting to call these due or just keep it as a straight rental? Wow, Dave, there's so much to that question. I don't even know where to start. First of all, Hearing it from a friend who heard it from other people does not evidence make that banks are more often calling uh, loans due when you take them over subject to. Secondly, if I could, if these five people did actually exist and I were to go to them and say, tell me the whole story. I would want to know things like, did by any chance the insurance lapse or the payments get behind or something else happen that called the bank's attention to the fact that the loan might not just have been, quote, taken over, but also might be going bad? 
because that would tell me a lot. And you mentioned that there are some bad actors now, maybe who are learning about subject two and doing it wrong. And that would increase my theory that perhaps one of those things had happened. And another question I would ask them is, what do you mean they called the loan due? Do you mean you got a letter that said this loan has transferred and it violates the due on sale clause and you have 30 days to make it right? Or do you mean you got that letter and then you didn't make it right and then the bank actually instituted foreclosure proceedings because a an automatically generated letter containing a threat of foreclosure is a different thing than the bank actually enforcing the due on sale clause, which to me would mean they actually started the foreclosure process. And since that's still extremely expensive for banks to do, I would think that you could use one of the other six or seven solutions like um, uh, just asking them to not foreclose or refinancing the property or asking them to give you a loan that's just like the loan you took over or transferring the property back to the seller to cure the default or selling it real fast to somebody who's going to actually pay it off and get a new loan. So I am not seeing or hearing this. I mean, you you hear about people getting those letters, but I haven't seen an increase in that. Uh, it's not going to change the way that I qualify a potential subject to deal because I already do that very carefully and wrapping the loan does not help. There's still a title transfer. That property is still, that loan is still in place and wrapping another mortgage around it does not help not violate the due on sale clause. If these other things that I just talked about are still true. So I'll, I'll keep my eyes open, Dave, but I'm not hearing what you're hearing, and I'm not sure that what you're hearing is verifiable. Thanks for your question. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, and we will be back right after this. Welcome back to question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. It also happens to be Tri-State Real Estate Expo the week of the big annual trade show put on by Cincinnati RIA. And uh, just if you're in the area, just go on Thursday night. It's there. It's chance to meet a lot of team members. It's there's tons of door prizes. There's lots of networking time with what'll probably end up being a few hundred local real estate entrepreneurs. It's, it's, it's good. It's the biggest meeting of the year every year. And there is a reason for that. You can get your tickets at CincinnatiRia.com. They're absolutely free, but you should download a guest pass so that you can whiz through the registration process. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. While you are there, check out the Saturday workshop that is coming up this Saturday about how to, how to profit at every stage of the foreclosure process from the short sale part to the sheriff's auction part to the after the bank owns the property part. It's a, it's a really good six hour primer on how to get ready for the foreclosure, little foreclosure bubble that seems to already be up on us. That's also at CincinnatiRia.com. Have a question here from Vince in Missouri. 
Vince says, do you invest in land? If so, do you comp it the same way you would a single family home? Uh, the answer, Vince, is I don't like intentionally go out looking for land to invest in because I'm not a builder and I'm not a speculator. I do occasionally run across lots because people will call me and say, well, you wrote me about this house, but the city tore it down. So now it's a lot. Would you like to buy that? And I have, in fact, bought some of those lots. In fact, I have a closing on one next week. And the answer is yes, you comp them the same way you do single family rentals, which is by trying to find a piece of land that has sold recently in that same vicinity that has matching characteristics. In the case of land, the characteristics are a little different, right? It's it's how big is the lot? It's what's the layout of the lot? Because a 25 by 100 foot lot which is a fairly common lot size in Cincinnati where the 25 feet is street frontage. And then it's a hundred feet deep is different than a 50 by 50 foot lot. It's got the same square footage, but the 50 foot lot has room to uh, build a driveway along with a house, right? You get a 25 foot wide lot. You can only build a house on it. And with current zoning setbacks, barely, build a house on it with a 50 foot lot, you can put on a house and a driveway. So those kinds of characteristics um, is the lot flat or is it hilly, right? If we've got some lots here in Cincinnati where the first 20 feet are nice and flat and then it drops off into a ravine or it shoots up into a cliff and the rest of that lot is not useful. You couldn't really count that with an all flat lot, right? Um, were the other lots cleared and this one's all covered with trees? Were the other, do the other lots have utilities running to them? So it's, it's similar in that you're looking for similar things that have sold recently in the same neighborhood. And a very crucial thing about quote investing in land, whether that means I'm going to hold on to it and hope the value goes up or I'm going to build on it right now is you must consider what the use of that land is going to be. There were many, many lots in many, many neighborhoods where I live where the only use of the lot realistically is the neighbor might want it for additional yard space because either the lots are not buildable or they're in neighborhoods where if you spent $200,000 building a house, you would have a $175,000 house because the neighborhood prices just don't support a $300,000 sale on that house. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm in Missouri and I'm wanting to work pre-foreclosures. And the only way I know to reach out to these homeowners is to get a 30, 60, 90 day late list for mailing. Are there better ideas? Well, I don't know if there are better ideas. There are alternative ideas. Uh, part of your issue, Vince, is that Missouri is one of the fastest foreclosure states in the country. So the thing that we do here in Ohio, which is wait until we see the bank file a foreclosure or what they're called, they're called list pendants in some parts of the country, ain't going to work for you because at that point you're a couple of months from the sale and it's very hard to negotiate a short sale in just a couple of months. You could also look at lists that would that would give other indications of financial trouble for instance delinquent tax lists um if you can get your hands on a 
delinquent utility list. That that might, you know, somebody who owns a house and they can't seem to pay their gas bill probably maybe is having struggling with their house payments as well. So anything you can think of along those lines would probably be valuable to you as well. And good luck on your budding short sale business. And you did hear the announcement about the all-day seminar coming up on Saturday about foreclosure, CincinnatiRia.com, right? All right. Um, next question is from Ron, who based on his area code, I think might be in the Houston area. And it is a very, very lengthy question asking me to theorize on a whole bunch of things. And, and literally this, this could be a whole show if we talked it all through, but it starts with, as I see it, a real estate crash is on its way. And I just like to address that part, Ron, because all of your other questions are sort of predicated on the idea of a real estate crash being on its way and inflation can pay for houses. I don't think that we are in a real estate bubble. I do believe that we are in a money bubble. There's too much of it chasing too few investments and services and products. And that is what is, of course, leading to the inflation that you talk about. I don't think that we're going to see a real estate crash in the next couple of years. And the reason is, unlike in prior real estate crashes, we don't have the two things that are really important to make that happen. What are those two things? Number one, an oversupply of housing. Do we have an oversupply of housing, Ron? Or are we about 6.38 million units short of enough housing to house all the people who are demanding housing? According to the National Association of Realtors, it is the latter. The second thing you need to have a true real estate bubble is um, over exuberance in lending. You need to have bad loans being made. You need to have the kind of loans being made that we saw during the savings and loan crisis of the mid eighties and the kind of loans being made that we saw prior to the great recession in 2000, in the, in the early aughts, the early two thousands banksters still being fairly conservative about who they lend money to. They're not making loans to people who are unlikely to be able to pay them back unless everything goes perfectly well and pigs fly, right? The loans are, loans are still being made based on what people actually make and what houses are actually worth. So I just don't see a real estate crash coming. So your question about how do we confidently buy houses in the face of a real estate crash, I don't know, we we don't have a real estate crash, so how do we confidently buy houses if things stay the way they are right now? Uh, what is your strategy to buy, hold, and sell in the upcoming markets? Any deal structures or concepts? Well, if I'm holding the property, it doesn't actually matter if the if the if the value goes to zero. What matters is is the monthly income I'm getting still exceeding my costs of owning it? And in inflationary times, everything goes up, including rents. And even if the value of the property drops because interest rates go up, what do I care? I already have a loan on it or have already paid it off. So 
interest rates rising doesn't have an effect on me in that situation. I will share one thing, which is during the labor inflation, stagflation period, my father was indeed in the real estate business. And he was indeed using strategies to deal with the fact that that interest rates at 18%. And it had to do with creative finance structures. He was selling on things like contracts for deed, where he could set the interest rate instead of the bank telling the buyer what they would have to pay. He was doing things like growing equity mortgages, where um, the the payments started off lower than was required to actually amortize the loan over 30 years. And then it went up like 5% every year for the first seven years. And then it, for the next 23 years, it stayed the same and amortized. Interestingly, although those seem like a great strategy for people to be able to afford houses when interest rates are high, they're now illegal. Thank you, Dodd-Frank. Buying properties subject to, buying them with owner-held financing, buying them via master lease, those are all ways to just avoid the whole issue of our interest rates now too high to make properties cash flow. So I would learn about those Thanks so much for your question, Ron. And if you're listening to Question and Answer Week, if you haven't figured that out already, ladies and gentlemen, we need to take a quick break and we will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. If I sound super excited, it's because I'm really looking forward to tomorrow night's Cincinnati RIA Tri-State Real Estate Investing Expo. Just can't tell you how much fun that meeting is every year. And you should come. And it's CincinnatiRIA.com to get your no-charge ticket. This is one of the meetings every year that we just throw open to the public because it's like everybody needs it. Everybody needs to build their team. CincinnatiRIA.com. Um, question from Andrea. She says, with supply chain issues and unavailability of talented contractors today because they're so busy, when starting to rebuild your real estate portfolio, do you suggest to start with buy and holds and not focus on fix and flips for now? Uh, well, first of all, Andrea, buying and holding, unless you're like buying turnkey rentals, doesn't really make it so that you don't need contractors. Like I, I'm turning over a unit that I've owned, a house that I've owned for many years right now. And it needs $15,000 worth of updating because the updating that we did 15 years ago doesn't look so updated anymore. Surprise. So it's a, it's kind of a problem you're going to have to tackle. Even if you buy a turnkey rental, something's going to break and you're going to need someone to go over there and fix it. Right. Uh, the question of whether it's easier given the supply chain and contractor issues to do buy and holds is, I, I guess it's, that's not the criteria I would focus on when making that decision because the people who are doing fix and flips are finding contractors. Yes, they are in short supply. Yes, they're slower. Yes, they're more expensive, but they're, they're, partly building that into what they are willing to pay for a flip in the first place. And they're partly depending on 
an ever-increasing market to have the property be worth more in six months when they're ready to sell it than it is right now. So if, if I, the criteria I would base it on is like, what is my goal? Do I need quick cash? Do I love fixing properties? Because if those, if that were the case, I would go full, full bore into the fix and flip business. And I would focus a lot of my networking and education and skill building on finding and keeping those great contractors. It's just, that is the hard part right now of being in the fix and flip business. It just is. In 2009, the hard part of being in the fix and flip business was that there were tens of thousands of unemployed contractors all over the United States who were willing to work for prices that they would not have considered 2004 just to, you know, keep body and soul together. And then you'd have this wonderful fixed up property that you couldn't sell (laughs) because there were no buyers in the market because there was no in the market. So there's always something like that going on and, and we always deal with it. Right. And in this case, the thing we're dealing with, if we want to fix and flip properties is that constant search for awesome contractors who will stay around a long time. Next question is from Rivka. She said, I'm assuming it's a she. I don't know why. It could be a guy. I don't know. I apologize if I have misgendered you, Rivka. Uh, I've been in real estate investing for a year, but I still haven't gotten a deal. I have a mentor, but I don't have much time or money. Do you have a suggestion? Uh, yes, Rivka, I do have a suggestion. And that is move heaven and earth to talk to as many potential sellers as you possibly can every day and don't focus on anything else. Don't, don't get all into, uh, I'm going to take a two day seminar on how to do 1031 exchanges on properties that I don't even have. Don't get into, I'm going to spend a week picking out the perfect name for my LLC and then getting it set up and all the paperwork done so that it can hold properties I don't already have. Your one and only job is talk to sellers and solve problems. Okay. So you're saying that you don't have much money or time. You got to figure out a way to get one of those two things. They, I don't know of any strategy that requires no money and no time and will generate deals. I really, really do. If I did, I would be implementing that strategy right now. <laughs> like I, I, I guess, I guess I started to say I wouldn't be here doing this radio show, but I guess I could be here doing this radio show because apparently it takes no time. You've got to figure out a way to either get some money or some time to do this. What would be some ways to do that? Well, let's not ask how, let's ask who. Are there people around you, maybe members of your RIA group, who do have money and would like to use that money to find deals, but don't have time to deal with things like the incoming phone calls and sorting those out and going to look at the properties? Maybe they could provide you with that money and you could provide them with that time. Oh, wait, you don't have time either. You see the problem? 
because there's the reverse situation where there's folks who have lots of time and would love to do all that for you, but they don't have the money to actually generate leads, but neither do you. Do you, do you see the issue here? You've got to figure out how to either get more time in your schedule or get more money. And then you can partner with somebody else who has the opposite things and y'all can find deals together for a while, figure out how to split that up until such time as you are both wealthy enough in both time and money to go out on your own and do the same thing. And by the way, your mentor should have told you this. Like if, if you're, if, if somebody's letting you pay them or take them to lunch or what, how, whatever your arrangement is with them and has not pointed out to you that you kind of got to choose your poison here and either find the time or find the money or give up on finding deals. Um, I would say maybe they're not fully doing their job as a mentor because part of the job is to tell you the truth about stuff, even when you don't want to hear it. Thank you for your question, though. It was a good one, good instructive one for folks. Um, next question in the archive is from Valerie, who says, should I let a seller have 90 days possession after closing on a fix and flip? He wants to get some stuff out of the house and says he needs that much time. I plan to negotiate for 60 days instead of 90, but I wanted some feedback on the issue. Well, Valerie, um, I assume that what this means is you're buying a house and you're buying a house in order for you to fix and flip it. And the seller is saying a condition of me selling you this house is that I get to leave my stuff in there for the next 90 days while I figure out what I want to do with it or work on getting it out or whatever. It doesn't sound like there's another option where he gets all the stuff out before closing and also you buy the house. I mean, this is just solve seller problems, right? The seller's problem, one of the seller's problems appears to be that he needs 90 days or feels like he needs 90 days to do whatever he needs to do to get his stuff out of the house. Could you say, we have a deal at this price if you can do it in 60 days? Absolutely. Because you're going to have three months of holding costs on a house you can't touch. And I know that's the under thing underlying your question here. Another another trade with the seller could be, well, I'm going to have 90 days worth of holding costs. So three months of paying taxes, paying insurance, heating the house, mowing the lawn, all of those sorts of things. I'm willing to let you have 90 days, but I need an equivalent price decrease. I need to, I need you to, you know, lower the price by however much you think that's going to cost you, $5,000 or something. Another option is consider this. Well, um, I'm, I'm one of a very few people who would actually let this seller have 90 days. And so that's why I'm getting this deal and nobody else and just live with it. Now, could you approach the seller with all three of those things? How about 60 days and we've got a deal? How about 90 days, but you give me price instead of me just eating three, three months worth of expenses. And if neither of those options work, okay, we'll do it under the terms and conditions that you want, Mr. Seller. This is, this is a pretty typical example of the kinds of problems that we 
that we are able to solve because we're not homeowners who need to move into the house the day after closing because we already gave notice at our rental house and just figure out a way to solve it that works for both of you is my very best piece of advice. Thank you for your question, Valerie. And thanks to all the folks whose questions I have read and who I have forgotten to thank. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. The reason I'm not giving out the phone number and email address every couple of minutes to encourage calls and emails is because uh, y'all have been so good about that over the next, uh, over the last few months that I have a whole pile of questions in my inbox that have gone unanswered. And this is where this is real estate Q and a catch up day and uh, just kind of going through what is already here. But if you have a burning question and you'd like to send it to askvina at gmail.com, go right ahead and do that. I'll probably get to it on the very next Q and a show next month. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing Question and Answer Catch-Up Week. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what I'm calling it now because I'm just going into my archive and picking up questions that have been asked over the last few months that we didn't get to for one reason or another. And this one is a question from the week that uh, Lindsay was talking about master leasing as a strategy. By the way, if you ever miss a Real Life Real Estate Investing show... You can always go to realliferealestateinvesting.com and download any one of 200 prior shows. It's kind of amusing to listen to the ones from years back when we're talking about, well, as soon as the market fully recovers, because real estate changes all the time. That's realliferealestate.com. If you would like to get notification uh, every Wednesday of upcoming shows and also stuff that's going on in the real world and the real estate investing world and my world and all of those kinds of things. You could send a, an email to askvina at gmail.com. Say, put me on your email list and also do say where you're from, if you don't mind. This question related to master leasing is from Sirenage in Columbus. She says, is it possible to send an offer to master lease 85 units in Texas? When I live in Ohio and the units are being offered for $5.7 million. Uh, well, it's possible to do anything, Surinage. You can always make an offer. The worst anyone can say is no. And that leaves you in no different position, really, than you are right now. You still don't have control of an apartment building. Master leasing is actually a much more familiar concept in the apartment world than it is in the single family home world where Lindsay lives. It's been a, you know, not, not like every day, but a fairly common strategy for years for folks to alleviate the management problems of burned out owners of multifamily buildings who also didn't want to sell because their taxes on a $5 million sale are going to be even worse than the rental housing provider who owns a $250,000 house, right? And those, those taxes could be in the, million dollar range, honestly. So I don't think any experienced broker or owner would, would look at that and go, what is this? I've never heard of such a thing before. 
I think the basis of your question is really, if I offer to master lease the property, how am I then going to manage it? And that is a very legitimate question. However, in an 85 unit building, you normally have a on-site property manager. So it's, it's my understanding is it's fairly easy to, to control or own an 85 unit building in a state that you don't live in. The key thing there would be, I think you would also want an option to buy it. And I think that you would have to make the lease numbers to the owner some number where even with all the expenses and property manager, you would still be getting the cash flow that I assume you desire here. I wouldn't necessarily expect that offer to be seriously considered in a market where apartments are maybe the hottest property class that there is. But it might be good practice to make it and it might build your confidence to make it to just discover that making the offer and getting a no or even a heck no uh, does not kill you. And just walking through the process of filling out the paperwork could be a good experience for you. So I say go for it. I don't, We don't really know what the... Uh, motivations of the seller are here, whether it's to avoid taxes, which would be the main reason that they would want to do a master lease. But, and therefore I, you know, I think your chances of getting that offer accepted are vanishingly small, but I think you should do it anyway. Question from Bill about the same exact show with Lindsay about master leasing. He says, what happens when you're ma- to your master lease when the owner wants to sell the property? So in other words, you have a lease that gives you the right to collect rents from the tenants and pay rents to the owner. And now the owner wants to sell the property. So what happens to that? Well, I think it's what happens to every lease bill, uh, Leases have a term, and when somebody new buys the property, if the property is still under lease, whether it's to you or to a tenant, they have to honor the remaining term of the lease. So if there's still a year to run, they're buying it subject to your lease. Now, thinking about this, if I were allowing someone to master lease a property that I owned, I would put a clause in that master lease that said, if I decided to sell the property, I could end of the lease with the investor with 30 days notice, because obviously the master lease affects who is willing to buy my house and for how much money. So I think it's, it's, it's contract driven, but in the absence of anything in the contract that might say that the lease is uh, voidable, that the new buyer has to, Go on with the lease that you made with the previous owner. A question from Glenn, whose phone number tells me that he is in Columbus. He says, I have nine properties, one of which is a double. So that's that's what they call two families in Columbus. That's the only place I've ever heard them called that. In other places, we call them duplexes or two families. So eight single families and a two family. I'm looking to sell them as a package in the near future. What would be the best way to value properties? Well, so Glenn, value in real estate is completely subjective as in else. What's a Picasso worth? I don't know. What will the market pay for it? 
what's a gallon of gas worth? I don't know. What's the, how, how much of it is the market willing to use at the current prices? You can certainly do what anyone would do on properties like this, which is simply comp them, find out what other similar properties are selling for in the area and price accordingly. But given the size of this package, this is how I would approach it. There are many, many corporate buyers, Wall Street buyers, who would love to lay their hands on at least eight of these properties all at once. The duplex could be a problem because most of these buyers are interested entirely in single family homes. So you might have to uh, split the double off from the eight single families. I would find a real estate agent who specializes in selling these properties to these companies. They work directly with hedge funds who buy packages of properties. And I would let that, the, that real estate agent or those agents walk the properties and tell you how much their clients would be willing to pay because you may find that they are willing to pay more than those comps just told you those properties are worth, depending on the condition, the age, the size of the units, all of that sort of stuff. Many of these companies buy based on cash flow as opposed to a strict look at what's this one worth and what's this one worth and what's this one worth. And um, many times hedge funds are the best buyers for properties like this. So I would inquire around about which real estate agents work with which hedge funds, call them, make sure that the kind of property you have here is even of interest to the hedge funds that they work with and see where that takes you. Thanks a lot for your question. Uh, next question is from Rod, who says, my budget is, and Rod is also in Columbus, by the way, my budget is very small, about $500. I've gathered over 500 leads in the last couple of months from driving for dollars for vacant and distressed homes. If you had to choose one, would you send postcards or would you cold call sellers? I do have a dialer that allows me to call out. Why do I have to choose one, Rod? I guess because you've got a dialer that is costing you money. Because most people who dial for dollars on a budget simply pick up the phone and start punching numbers in. They don't pay for a dialer to do call outs. I could, with $500, send out two postcards to the 500 leads, which is better than sending one postcard. And I could also call those people and I could also try and track them down on social media and contact them that way. If I thought I had a good lead list here, if I really had a list of vacant and distressed houses, I would do all of those things on my $500 budget. And with 500 driving for dollars leads and a a, a full court press to contact all these folks in every way I possibly could on my budget, I think I could pretty much be guaranteed two deals out of that, which would give me a bigger budget for next time, wouldn't it? So good luck with your driving for dollars list. 
Let's see what I can still answer in the one minute we have left in the show. Okay, here's a question from Robert in Tampa. He says, say more about how can we have more foreclosures even though prices have risen? Lots of people have equity and prices look like they are going to continue to rise. Simple answer, Robert. All those facts ignore a very basic fact of human nature which is that lots of people take no action, even when it would be good for them to take action. They all know that the price of the property has gone up. They probably know that if they got a real estate agent, they could sell their property for pretty close to what they owe the bank and thus avoid the foreclosure and not have that on their credit report and all of those other things. And guess what? A significant portion of them will not do any of those things. They will continue to be in arrears. They will never call a real estate agent. They will let the property go to sheriff sale. How do I know this? Because I have been watching it happen for over 30 years and I am still dealing with those people on a day-to-day basis right now. Hopefully as many Americans as possible will take advantage of the fact that the, the value of their properties have gone up and that loan modifications are readily available. But I am telling you, I am working with three different sellers right now who know all of that stuff and are still just sitting as the foreclosure gets closer and closer and closer. Thanks so much for your question. And thanks to all the folks who sent in questions on today's question and answer week. We're out of time. But we will definitely be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.